0: Welcome to this edition of the Gateway Podcast. For more information about our faith community, feel free to visit gatewaychurch.org.nz. Thanks for tuning in and enjoy this message. This morning we uh, continue our series in the Beatitudes by looking at probably the best known and the most quoted of them all, which says, blessed are those who mourn for they shall be comforted. And if I'm very honest with you, I'm incredibly conscious and sensitive of the nature of this one because it conjures up a lot of feelings uh, in many, many people. And I wanna approach it sensitively, hopefully with truth, but to unpack it in a way that would uh, speak to us, help us, challenge us in the midst of what can be an incredibly difficult passage for many of us. Firstly, when we heard two weeks ago Uh, and we looked at this subject, we learned that this teaching, the Beatitudes, is for Christians. It is not for people who do not know Jesus. It's not for some other political system. It is for people who know Jesus and call him Savior and Lord, and not for people who don't have a faith. It may sound harsh. It may sound incredibly just harsh, but that is the teaching of this passage. We have heard uh, both from Matt and from... Joe, about being in sync with God. So, blessed are those who mourn, for they shall be comforted, is for Christians and for those who have a relationship and a walk with Jesus Christ. The language refers to the people of the community of God, people like you and I. Sadly, and this is primarily for another day, but often this verse is quoted and given to people in their saddest of moments who absolutely have no faith in Jesus Christ, and they are given false hope to cling to when in reality there is none outside of Jesus. There is not a universal comfort for all mourners. It is for those who are in Jesus Christ. There is a sadly, an increasing amount of pastors and pulpits across our world that teach that are starting to teach that we will all be saved in the end, that it's going to be okay for everybody, that there will be a universalism, there will be a universal coming to Jesus, and that love will win at the end, because the Bible says, blessed are those who mourn, for they shall be comforted. The reality of that is that it is not true, and it is not accurate to the Bible that we read today. For me, one of the saddest things that I do or have, have to do sometimes in my role is that I go to funerals and there are people who are brokenhearted and many of them, there will be unbelievers and have no concept of Christ. And then they are told blessed of those who mourn for they will be comforted. And in the midst of their darkest hours and in their saddest moments, they are given a hope that is not true and it is not uh, real, and they mourn, and the verse is completely taken out of context, and there is a false hope that is given. This may sound, and you may think, gosh, you're being incredibly loveless and harsh, but it is not the reality of the gospel and of the Jesus that we worship. We cannot cannot water it down to be politically correct, or just to be sensitive, or seen to be nice, or seen to be giving false hope. For some, there will not be comfort. We do as Christians, we need to frame how we speak. We need to use language that is accurate and biblical and still very pastoral and very gracious. But we must not be a people who give false hope based on a beatitude that is often misquoted. This is a huge pastoral issue that we all have to, at some stage in our life, when we encounter people who encounter death, and we need to be very careful how we frame it and what we say. And this, this really does lead me neatly into the second reality of looking at this subject, that in a congregation this size, there will be quite a number for whom mourning today on this the 6th of September will be very real, will be very current, will be incredibly painful and incredibly raw. And that to even mention the subject will bring with it emotion and tears, and this is okay, because that's okay. We're in the house of God, and it's okay to mourn, and it's okay to, to feel this way. Actually, this is gonna, I'll say a little bit more later on. I was, um, I was done a lot of work going through this the last week, and I, I was thinking of a number of issues in my own life, uh, and uh, I'll tell you in a moment, but I, I found myself crying. And I just found myself, just tears coming down my eyes as I was thinking about this. And uh, death in my family For my parents is a number of years ago, but the reality is that it's still raw. And it's still incredibly sad because they, they were good folks. And we need to be given the freedom to grieve. We need to be given the freedom to mourn. And one of the wonderful things that does come out of the Beatitudes in Matthew 5 here is that Jesus gives us that permission to do so. That he gives us permission to mourn. He gives us permission to grieve for those who we miss and for those whose parting has broken our hearts and broken our lives. He gives us this permission to do so. So often the temptation for, for societies like ours, Western societies, then, instead of giving ourselves time to grieve, we feel the pressure to, to, to buckle up and to move on. You know what I mean? That's sad and that was incredibly difficult, but we, we do need to move on. Instead, when perhaps we need to take time to stop and to grieve and mourn. I'm sure we've all seen on the news or just some Middle Eastern cu- cultures or Mediterranean cultures where mourning is very loud and it's, it's very out, outward and it's incredibly just vocal and it's community-wide. And you see people wailing at the, say, at the size of coffins and of graves. They actually say that mental health issues around this issue are far less in Middle Eastern countries and around the Mediterranean where people mourn like that. That, that, that is actually incredibly healthy, and it is incredibly life-giving when those things happen. But so often, we can revert to a, to a thing, well, I, I need to keep this to myself, and I, and I need to move on, I need to be brave, and yes, we do. But we also need to allow ourselves to cry and to mourn. You know, if we don't talk it out, we need to be careful that we don't take it out on ourselves or on somebody else. C.S. Lewis says, "I it's mean, so true, God whispers to us in our pleasures, he speaks to us in our conscience, but shouts in our pain, and we need to listen. I believe that very often God uses pain and, and death and mourning just to communicate something of, of his nearness, something of his heart, that he moves into, he, he bends into brokenness, and he wants to speak to us, and we need to stop and to listen. In truth, mourning is inevitable for all of us. Nobody likes the experience of mourning, but sooner or later, everyone must pass through it. By declaring a blessing on those who mourn, Jesus indicates that grief is the normal part of of the Christian life, of everyone's experience. It is not unusual. It makes no distinction between race or creed or color. It grief touches the young, it touches the old, it touches the rich, it touches the poor, it touches the male and the female. No one is exempt. Probably this is why it's one of those popular, everybody knows this beatitude. Everybody grieves because everyone at some time will experience loss. (coughs) May I gently but kindly say the following, which to some may sound shocking, but I, I believe it needs to be said. This morning, don't ask me the age, I will tell you if you, think, if you really do want to know. If you are a certain age today and you have not started to talk to your family, to plan and consider that one day that you will be with Jesus, then can I advise you to do it? It comes to us all, and if you are a certain age today, and you have never talked about it with anyone at all, what will happen when I go to be with Jesus? What happens on that event? What do I want done? What's life going to be like after? How are you going to be taken care of? All those questions that will happen. If you have not started to talk about it with someone, please, please do so. By talking about it, you're not tempting fate. There's not some superstitious God in heaven who says, oh, they talked about dying. Let's knock a year off their life. <laughs> That's superstition. The Bible says it's pointing into the man wants to die. God's not gonna get worried about you talking about it. And I would really, really encourage you to, to do that. And as I said, it's, it's being sensible. It's being a good follower of Jesus. Towards the end of his ministry, towards the end of his life, Jesus talked to his disciples about the time that he was going. He started to prepare his disciples for the time when he was not there, when he was gone. So too did Samuel. So too did David and Paul and many others. It's not being pessimistic. And you know, I hope that you all live to be 100. But in case you don't, perhaps it's good to talk to someone about what you would want to have done on that day and after, and what's life going to be like for those you've left behind and love and care for. Some of the saddest conversations I've had as a pastor over the last 35 years have been those times when I have sat at the family of a bereaved member where the family or the couple or the husband or the wife or the son or the daughter have never talked about the inevitability that was before them, and the husband or the wife or the person that is left behind did not ever have conversations with the recently deceased and they knew nothing of what was gonna happen in the future, they didn't know the finance, they didn't know anything, they didn't know any of the arrangements, they had no idea what the future was gonna be like. And those are the saddest conversations that in the midst of sadness, there's incredible grieving because a sense of hopelessness creeps in. And I think it is just our duty as common sense thinking Christians that when we reach a certain age, we talk about some of those things with our family. I always say that um, I want to be cremated. I want to be cremated because I I want a little thing that the kids always have to carry with them. (laughs) I want to be a burden in death (laughs) as much as I was in life. Thank you, Jesus. On this Father's Day, you can say it, can't you? I'm not joking. You can laugh. It's absolutely true. I just want that pot and I want the most difficult one to polish. <laughs> Should we move on? Um, in the New Testament, there are nine different Greek words used to describe sadness, regret, mourn, and the word used here by Jesus is a word called pentheine should be up. The Greek word is penthein. <clears throat> and as it says, it is the strongest word in the Greek language to describe this process. And it is used in classical Greek to describe the process of wailing and lamenting. It's that, it's that piercing sorrow which literally causes you to cry aloud and it's most used in Greek literature. And in the New Testament, in reference to death and the loss of a loved one or a family member. I don't know if you've ever had the occasion to sit with someone and they have lamented and they have cried out and their whole body has ached. And their whole body has cried out. I remember sitting in the car with someone whose story I won't tell but I heard a cry and I heard a lament that came out of complete brokenness. And it's something that once you hear, you'll never forget. And I've heard it a number of occasions, but that's the the type of cry that it's talking about. And it's into this type of grief that Jesus says, blessed are those who mourn for they shall be comforted. Not someone who just upsets you, not someone who just annoys you or something that you just need to get over and move on from. But God says into that type of sorrow, I will comfort you. I will be there for you. And God comforts his people at the most tragic and difficult times. And as we hear regularly from Don, one of the best ways to interpret a line or interpret a passage in Scripture is to see what it says elsewhere in similar and related passages. And if we apply this principle to here, and I'm not going to go through minutes or long time to explain, but basically... If you take this passage and you compare it with other ones in Scripture, there are three things that this verse is talking about, things that we mourn for. And they are, says he, the first thing to be mourned for is our personal sin before God. That is the first thing that this is talking about, in that we are to be a people who mourn before God because of the sin in our life and the damage that it does and the damage that it has done. The second thing that we are called to mourn about is the effect of sin in others and in a broken world, that we are to lament not only our own sin, but we are to be a people, a Bible-believer following a Bible believer in Jesus-following people that lament for not only our sin, but the sin in the world, the sin in society, the sin that wreaks havoc in people's lives. And then the third one is for our own situation and for those <laughs> times of personal suffering those are the three things that we're going to very briefly unpack this morning you know i just realized one of the great things about these new lights you can't see the clock <laughs> it's really good oh. suddenly everybody's got really worried now that was a nervous laugh okay it's just gone ten thirty. right <laughs> <laughs> the first thing to be mourned is our personal sin before a holy God. Not in a sense that we are constantly condemned, not that we are constantly feeling bad and worthless and that we're of no value, and that we constantly just are hard and down on ourselves, but actually the complete opposite. We mourn and we, we need a, a continued conviction of personal sin in the life of each and every one of us because it is essential for a strong, vibrant Christian life that is filled with dependence on God, filled with gratitude for our lives, full of joy and abandoned to Him. It is only really truly when we know how terrible and how drastic and damaging our sin is and what we have been released from does it actually release us into a dynamic of abundant life of worshiping Jesus for who He is. That if we do not know the, the damage that sin does, saved from, you know, if you're saved from little, you'll rejoice little. But if you realize the incredible damage, and that's the type of people God wants us to be people who realize the damage, the consequences of sin, realize how much we have been forgiven, and that when we sin, we lament, and that sinning is something that we so don't want to do because <laughs> the damage that it does to our, our own life but affects our relationship with God. You know, Convicted, a sense of conviction of the power of personal sin, but with the forgiveness of God, promotes incredible, humble worship and dedicated service. When we know how much we've been forgiven, how much we just want to worship him. As Paul the Apostle matured in Christ, so did his understanding of the enslaving power of sin and how much sin had corrupted his life. At the end of his life, Paul could write these words, Christ Jesus came into the world to save sinners, of whom I am the worst. But for this reason, I was shown mercy so that in me, the worst of sinners, Christ Jesus could display his unlimited patience as an example for those who would believe on him and receive eternal life. I love the way that Rick Warren says it. He says it like this. There are two kinds of people in the world. People who are broken and sinful and know it. And people who are broken and sinful and will not admit it. <laughs> that we lament, that we mourn for our own sin. So that it causes and brings us to a place of, of worship. It ties in with what Matt spoke about last week about us being poor in spirit and acknowledging our total need of him. Poor in spirit is not, oh poor me, but in the sense of, I have nothing. I can do nothing without Christ who will enable me. And that's an incredibly powerful starting place. One of those classics of David, Psalm 51, the remorse after his adultery with Bathsheba. And, and just the profound repentance. I read it again this morning as I was just finally preparing for, this, for the day. Just the words that he used. You can see him as a broken man, conscious of his sin. Words like, wash me, cleanse me, blot out. And all the, the, that goes with it. Just an incredible, incredible, powerful understanding of sin. This might be something to do with my age or it's maybe something more to do with my my heritage. But I have to say that I sometimes love those old hymns, not not because they're old, but because sometimes the word, and this is the one that always impacts me. I stand amazed in the presence of Jesus the Nazarene and wonder how he could love me. A what? A sinner, condemned, unclean unequivocal understanding of what sin has done and the damage it causes in our life today. And sometimes we, we don't soft pedal, but sometimes we, I don't know if we hear that again. You know, John Newton's amazing grace, it says that saved a wretch like me. That's a wretch like you and that's a wretch like me. And that brings us to that place that, oh, not oh, Paul me, but I am so incredibly aware and grateful for what he has done in my life. But I mourn for it when, when I sin. I just, Lord, I just, I don't want to upset you. <laughs> for, my, for my family, um, we probably stay away from this quite a lot, but art is a great point of discussion. And when it comes to that, I'm just a grumpy old man. And if, if I see a picture, and you have to take more than 20 seconds to explain it to me, I don't want to see it. If you have to say to me that somebody is promoting their innermost feelings and they're putting it on the canvas, I just don't get it. And you know, I, mean, I probably ostracized 20% of the congregation this morning by talking about modern art in a very nasty way, but just forgive me. But if you have to be explained, there's something I don't quite get, but that's just my age. I love this, this work by Rembrandt. I don't know if you can all see it. Incredible work by Rembrandt, it's called The Raising of the Christ. And uh, it's, in, it's in a museum in Munich, one of, I think it's one of its finest. And Rembrandt was, uh, lived in Europe about 100 years after the great reformation of Martin Luther, and he was profoundly impacted by the, the Dutch reform movement of the 16th, 17th century. And uh, he was, by many believed him to be a a man of faith. We would struggle sometimes with his lifestyle, but he was a a man of faith. And uh, he was the original inventor of the selfie. You know, we think that selfies are a 21st century. Um, No, they're not. This man, I'm not not 100% sure, but anecdotally, he painted himself into more of the pictures than any other artist in, in history. So this is him, if you see it, at the foot of the cross as Christ is being raised up. <laughs> and you see that he's got this like a turban on it. And it's not a, he's not trying to make a, a statement of art. This is not an artistic of, oh, well, I'm dressing it up. What it is believed and Rembrandt talked about in his life was he realized that it was his sin that put Christ on the cross. And that is why he has painted himself into this picture, this painting, the raising of the Christ. And the reason that he's got this turban on is not because, as I said, it's a fashion statement, but painters in Europe during that, in that season or that era, because they didn't wanna get paint in their hair, they used to wear these things that covered all their hair. It's the same as us painting us today in our gumboots. This is Rembrandt in his working clothes, in his workplace, realizing that at the reality of life, and in the sinfulness of his own life, it was he who put Christ on the cross. Friends, we mourn, and we are called to be a people who are blessed because we mourn, because we realize the damage that sin does. And it was our sin that put Christ on the cross. And we are forgiven and we are a people who are are most blessed. But we are called to be a people who as a consequence, we worship and we live a life of dedicated service, called out in our sphere of influence to be a, a beatitude living Christian because we realize the damage that sin has done to us and to other people. Followers of Christ lament over their sins and know the power of sin and know the power of forgiveness. We mourn secondly for the effect of sin in others and in a broken world and the damage that it does. To be a disciple of Jesus is is a call to be a people of sorrow and acquainted with a grief like Jesus was. When we read that Jesus went to the the tomb of Lazarus, it says that he was greatly moved in spirit and he wept. Jesus wasn't crying, Jesus wasn't upset because Lazarus was dead. He was gonna sort that out in a matter of moments. He was crying and he was upset because the damage that death does that's caused through sin in people's lives. That's why he was crying. Not because of Lazarus, as I said, that's gonna be sorted in a quick second. But he knew that death caused by sin caused so much damage in people's lives. Friends, you know when the Bible says that God hates divorce, God is not being nasty to people who go through those situations and find themselves in that. It's not the unforgivable sin or anything nonsense like that. God says he hates divorce because he hates the damage it does in families and in communities and in people's lives. That's why he says he hates it. And we are to be a people who know and feel the sin and the fallenness of our society and the world around us. When Jesus was approaching Jerusalem and he knew that they were going to miss out on God's glory and that the city would soon be destroyed because of their sin, he wept. When we mourn over our own sin and understand how sin has permeated and damaged the glory of God, and see the pain and suffering and hellishness that sins, sin brings, we will cry out for God to have mercy on this nation and in our community. Let us never forget it. You know, as much as I believe with all my heart that God delights in us here this morning and every other congregation that gathers around this time, this town corporately worshipping, listening to His Word, basking in the sense of being together, basking in the... In the, in the In the sense of the Holy Spirit, I believe with all my heart that Almighty God, as much as He is delighted with us, He is as moved to tears as He gazes on a young mum with two children sitting in a bedsit in East Hamilton who doesn't know where her next meal is going to come from. And He's as concerned about that as He is about us here that he is concerned about a drunk that is sleeping under a bridge who t- chose to go to take alcohol because they could not find solace anywhere else in life. He is as concerned and as moved about those two situations and we need to be also. But the refugee situation that is, that is happening in Europe today, I don't know what, you, I do not know what word to use, migrant, refugee, whatever. Let's just use the word people who need God who Jesus Christ died for, that he, that he went to Calvary and he died on the cross for them as much as he did for us. And the friends, we are to lament that and we are to be concerned about our community and our nation and our world and we are to be a people who are mourn for the loss, not because we feel guilty because we have and they don't. It's because of the damage that sin has done in their life. And that we have the answer through Jesus Christ. And what does it cause us to do? The third aspect we come to is the aspect of our own lives and the situations or the suffering we face. Blessed are those. Blessed are we if we mourn, for we will be comforted. The very use of the Greek word and context has to include um, personal suffering. And as I said, it's, this is really is holy ground for some, and the mention of this subject, or this aspect of the subject is heart rendering, and we really do need to tread incredibly gently. I have to admit that sometimes when I go to and when I take many funerals, I, I find it extremely hard to read Or hear the words of 1 Corinthians 15, 55, which says, says, oh death, where is your sting? Because very often from where I stand, it is everywhere. Everybody's feeling it, and it's terrible right now. And it's everywhere, and it's not simply because that person that is being laid to rest is incredibly wonderful, and they will be sorely missed, and they leave a legacy. And the hellishness that will be felt by their family will be terrible. But it's often because the person that has been buried there has been an absolute horrible person in their life, in someone's life. And there are things that are happening today that will be forever unresolved, and they will be hurt because of that person's died. And there was never resolution, and that person has been a terrible person in life. And now they've gone to to meet their maker. It's not one or the other, but it's very often the both. This morning, as we we build to a conclusion, I want to share something out of my own experience that greatly influences me how I I feel on this subject, not something that I feel comfortably doing. I don't normally want to talk about pot and rugby, I don't normally talk about uh, my own personal situations. But um, I was going a certain way on this message this morning, but in the last week I had four or five conversations with people. and. We didn't mention death, but death came up in the conversation. That wasn't why we met, it was just for other reasons. So I just want to tell you a little story of my own. My (laughs) my personal story is that my dad uh, dropped dead 23 years ago. Um, I I loved him dearly. Father's Day is a wonderful day for me and a sad day. He was my hero. He taught me to love God. He taught me to love one woman. He taught me never to raise my hand in anger. He taught me to work hard. He taught me to get over myself. He taught me, if you don't know the answer, don't make it up, and much more. For every day that I lived at home that I can remember, my dad was usually up early, but when I did see him getting up early, first thing he did was he got down by the side of his bed and he prayed. Before he went to sleep every night, he got on his knees and he prayed. Whatever the situation, that is what he did. And he died doing what he loved. He was a farmer. And uh, horses were his hobby, they were his passion. And it was four o'clock in the morning, he was getting up to see a mare that was foaling. He, I think he loved those horses more than he actually did his kids. But, no, that's not true. Well, maybe. Um, <laughs> and it was four o'clock in the morning, and he dropped dead. Just literally dropped dead. In a sense, he, he'd been seeing, receiving some medical help, but he was basically fine. Twelve hours before, I'd had a conversation with him. He said, come and do this with me. And thankfully, I made a good decision. I said, yeah, of course I will, I'll come with you, Dad. And I remember my last conversation with my dad was, he said, oh, son, I feel really tired. I feel so tired. I said, that's okay, Dad, that's all good. You just need to start to retire. You need to start to take it a bit easy. You know, we will take care of you, all that sort of stuff. I said, you know, just get some, I remember saying, just get some sense and take it easy. Last thing I ever said to my dad, he took me literally at my word and, <laughs> and, and went into eternity. And the suddenness of that, he dropped out at, at the foot of our stairs, um, at his home, and it rocked us as a family. Our family had faith and it brought us through and sustained us, but the shock was immense and painful. Incredibly, I would say it's the hardest week of my life. That week, three close members, including my dad of my family, died. We just seemed to go from funeral to funeral to funeral. Never drunk so much tea in my life. We just seen Welsh funerals, all you do is drink tea and, Welsh, and eat Welsh cakes. It was really, really tough. Shaped how I think about it. My mum, now my mum, whom we equally love, was completely different. Having managed to survive the devastation of my dad's death, she outlived my dad by 17 years and died six years ago this week. This week, I think that was the reason probably why I was crying. And um, she, never, she never recovered from losing my father, but she lived a good life surrounded by her children and grandchildren. Then at the end, she died very quickly and we were all there. And these two experiences shaped how I think about this whole subject. And as, we, as I said, we build our clothes. There's five things that I wanna look around the whole area of mourning. They're gonna be really short, so don't worry. Very, very brief. A couple of them I've already mentioned, but are just in the sense of, so that when we find ourselves mourning, that we have done some work in preparation, And you know, um, forgive me for saying this, it's not meant to be rude or facetious, but why don't we prepare? Somebody said to me at my mum's funeral, my mum was in her 80s, and if you're, please don't get nervous if you're in your 80s. Um, Somebody said to me, oh, this must have been a surprise, your mum dying suddenly. And I said, she was in her 80s. I said, no, it wasn't a surprise. At the end, it was an incredible surprise. But the fact that she was in her 80s, and we talked about it, and we communicated about it. And friends, what I want to do this morning is to help you prepare for those times, the worst of times that will come into your life and that will help you mourn. And those times of mourning can be an incredibly good time. Maybe a contradiction in terms, but I believe it can be. First of all, talk about it before it happens. It's not in a morbid sense. And I've already talked about it. Talk about it before it happens. You know what I mean? So that when morning comes in this area of our life. Friends, we can do very little about the, when people are taken in their infancy or, or when people die in a car accident as a young person, but I believe that we can do some work in advance for all these situations. First of all, talk about it before it happens. You know, put things right before Put things right that need to be put right and you may rightly say chris you don't know what they did and i never want to see them again or talk to them again you know very true but let me just say this i haven't got a theology for this but if you keep saying i never want to talk to them or see them again god may take you at your word he may grant you your wish and he may take you at your word and you may never see them again and you may never get the chance to put it right Just be careful that he doesn't take you at your word in a situation, and you didn't take the opportunity to get it right. Thirdly, say things that need to be said. (coughs) I sat with someone this week, and they said, I just had to apologize to my dad, because when I was in his teens, I took his car without telling him, and I smashed it up, and he was cross with me, but in, in what happened, I don't think I ever said sorry. And they sat down, to me it was like, what a great thing to be able to say sorry to your dad for on the deathbed. He's not gonna punish you, is he? (laughs) One thing I do want to ask my dad when I see him is, why didn't he smack me more? You know, I mean, I know it's politically incorrect, but he was very kind with me. Let me get away with murder, I tell you. You know, say things that need to be said, because there will come a time when you won't get that opportunity. And those are things that we need to say to those 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 around us that we love and we cherish. Say those things now when you have the opportunity to say them. Thirdly, and fourthly, <coughs> do things now that you want to do if at all possible. Now, what do I mean by that? If there's something that you want to do, I encourage you to do it. If there's something that you can do for, for a family member or a father or a mother or something, you just think, oh, I haven't got the time now. I'll do it at a later date. You know, do it. Do it. I'm just going to give you an example, which is really pathetic, but it's, it's the best one I can think of. My mum was passionate about sport. She loved rugby. And it's just a fact, I could, hope would be the first to say this. I would be anywhere in the world, and if I wanted to know a rugby score, I'd ring my mum. I wouldn't ring my wife, nor my my kids were young. I'd ring my mum. And if you spoke to my mum for about three minutes, you would have a summary of the match. She was brilliant, she was passionate about rugby. My mum died when she was 81. When she was 65, my sister and I were thinking, what do you get your mother for birthday or for Christmas? So what we did, we, didn't, we decided we're not gonna get her any more Christmas presents, we're not gonna get her any more birthday presents. Between us, we paid <coughs> for her to have a subscription to Sky. <coughs> it was the most expensive present we all ever bought because it lasted for 16 years. <coughs> so probably don't follow the advice that I have just given by Sky but it was something that she loved, something that she just had a passion for, and she just could tell you everything about it. But it was a very practical thing that we could do to do things for them, if it was at all possible. And lastly, it's okay to mourn. As I said, users, please come and join me. And these come out, our our experience of how we can (coughs) make mourning an incredibly (laughs) different experience. And this leads very quickly into, and they shall be comforted. And uh, the meaning of the the phrase, they shall be comforted, is is again, as we've seen over the last couple of weeks, both present and future. This wonderful now and then of God's plan, that he wants to comfort us now, and also there is an ultimate culmination of that when we get to eternity. A great way to see this again is to look at the original. And uh, the word here, the word that is used here for comfort is paraclete. And if you've been around church or Holy Spirit things much, you will know that the word paraclete is the word that is used for the Holy Spirit. When Jesus says, I will send a comforter, when I will send another one, the word is, I will send the paraclete. (laughs) So when Jesus is saying, blessed are those who mourn for they will be comforted, it's saying they will be comforted by the Holy Spirit. They will be comforted. We will be comforted by God himself. One slight nuance and I think it's the only time it's used, and it's called the vocative sense. I don't really know what that means, but what I'm about to tell you, it's really good. It, it gives us a picture of, in the word, the paraclete coming. In, involved in it is someone summoning the paraclete, someone calling up the Holy Spirit. And I love that imagery of God saying, you know, they're comforting. Let's call up the Holy Spirit and do it. You know, so often in our, in our times of mourning and sadness, we think that God is a million miles away from us sometimes. The reality is he's already there because God in his knowledge has called him up to be in our presence and comforting us in the here and now. I'm going to leave you with a quote. It's, it's a, I don't know who it is. It's anonymous. and. holds up a vision of being a beatitude believing and living christian i'm not even close there but maybe it'll challenge us as we close one who mourns this is someone who believes and follows the beatitudes one who mourns sees life from an eternal perspective he is humble she is sensitive to personal sin to the sin of others and how sin affects others they're responsive to their own suffering knowing that god is working good through it they are not bitter miserable complaining distressed, gloomy, rather they are filled with joy and gratitude, compassion and mercy. They have no tolerance for sin and disobedience to God, but have mercy on the victims of sin. The Christian who mourns and looks for the comfort of God is marked by a deep and serious relationship with God and knows the heart of God and has the heart of God for others. Thanks for listening. We hope it was an encouragement to you. Again, Check out gatewaychurch.org.nz to find out what's going on within our church.